This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Value Inspiration Podcast. My name is Ton Dobber, and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration. The purpose of my company is to help business software companies rethink what can be to become remarkable again. The goal that I have in this podcast is to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential that we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. So my strong belief is that we can think big, and therefore we should. And doing so will help to create a better world for all of us. This podcast is all about that. The guest on my podcast this week is Mark Esposito, co-author of the AI Republic. We decided to say, you know, there is a whole degree of misinformation about AI out there, especially from, from a business perspective, so B2B, when we're trying to make clients, regardless of how educated they were, I think the, they were heavily influenced by what they were hearing. The more you work with AI scientists, the least they call it intelligence. They call it everything but AI. They said, why there's such a big gap between what the scientists who develop this technology talk about and what everybody else describes. And so the AI Republic is really the effort to create this relationship between what we think the technology is and can do, which is by itself is a phenomenal advance in our technologies and the misinformation that I think we currently have so that we can empower more and more people, first of all, to know. And once they know, they can make a deliberate decision whether they need AI or whether they actually they just need some good form of uh, either automation or digital transformation. This is Mark. He's a co-founder of Nexus Frontier Tech, a leading global firm providing AI solutions to a variety of clients across industries, sectors and regions. In 2016, he was listed on the radar of Thinkers50 as one of the 30 most prominent business thinkers on the rise globally. Mark has worked as a professor of business and economics at Health International Business School and at Thunderbird Global School of Management at Arizona State University. He was also a fellow at the Judge Business School in the UK as part of the Circular Economy Center. He has developed and conducted courses in business government and society and economic strategy and competitiveness at Harvard University's Division of Continuing Education. Mark also served as Institute's Council Co-Leader at the Microeconomics of Competitiveness Program at the Institute of Strategy and Competitiveness at Harvard Business School under the mentorship of Professor Michael E. Porter. I interviewed Mark for the first time in episode 22 of my podcast. We then focused on his best-selling book, Understanding How the Future Unfolds. Today, however, we discuss his new book, The AI Republic, and we explore the changes that are required to build a position of advantage by blending humans and tech in a relevant way. By listening to this podcast, you will learn three things. Firstly, that to succeed in AI, we have to get the entire organization engaged, and not only IT. We have to understand it needs to be part of the core strategy, and that it's a collaborative long-term process, not a one-off thing. Secondly, why the question is never, how do humans compare to machines? 
But instead, how do I integrate technology in jobs that currently exist or can exist? And how do I empower this to become a form of excellence? And thirdly, that getting started is a lot about recognizing where your business model is generating a friction with where the market is going. And from there, determining where technology can help you. So Mark, welcome back on my podcast. I think it's about a year ago, now, more than a year ago, then, that we talked for the first time about your earlier book. That's right. Which was about, it was, yes. Yeah, that was about drive and kind of yeah, how you can pick up on the bigger trends to prepare yourself for the future. But you recently launched another book, which is called The, uh, the AI Republic. And yeah, I was intrigued by that. And that's uh, why I invited you back on my podcast. So, Tom, first of all, thank you for having me back. I mean, your podcast uh, brought me a lot of luck. The first one, I was using it several times when I wanted people to know more about, you know, what the book is all about. Because I think in, in the format that you're using for the podcast, it really helps to concentrate, you know, the main message without diluting too much. And I think it's, it's perfect. And, and I'll do the same with this podcast. I'll use it as a way to describe more about what is the AI Republic, which is a project that started in 2017 right after the the drive book and was culminated in june 2019 so about two years well i mean thank you for the compliments and the fact that you've used my work to promote your work so that's always good and that's what messaging is all about right it is it is yes absolutely the essence of what i'm doing for a business yeah so yeah. yeah i mean to get going on this again like you wrote your first book and then, of course, it's, I mean, I know how hard it is to get to write a book and how much time and effort that costs. But then you decided quite, quite quickly after that, let's do another one. So what was the big idea behind that? So the big idea behind, Tom, was the fact that we, I was getting more and more involved with technology. Inside of the drive framework, there was, of course, the V of volatility, complexity, and scale that was already opening me towards the impact technology has in our society. And then my first real entrepreneurial adventure is with this company called Nexus Frontier Tech that I co-founded yeah. with four other people, two of which are co-author of the iRepublic, Danny Go and Terence C. And so yeah. I started to, I think Danny was on your podcast as well in a, in a previous exactly. time. So we decided to say, you know, there is a whole degree of misinformation about AI out there. And I think we should try to write a book for people who are not coders, they did not come from computer science, and they want to know more about this technology. Okay. Mis- yeah. Misinformation. I, I saw, I mean, I read, I read through it and I, I highlighted a couple of things. And that was exactly one of the areas that, that highlighted uh, yes. here. I mean, one of the so, things that you're saying in your book is in Europe, a lot of companies still do, are still struggling with how to put AI into their business operations. In the in other report, it said, or in another part of the book, it says, sensational media reports speculate on the rise of machines, but fail mm-hmm. to see that there's no real intelligence in AI. That's so right. there's, yeah, I think there's a lot of education still that needs to be done, right? There is. A, you know, we have, especially from, from a business perspective, so B2B, when we were trying to make clients, at first we realized that they had a bit of education about AI because there was so much of this dark net and Terminator stuff that was still in their head. Regardless of how educated they were, I think they, they were heavily influenced by what they were hearing. So we started thinking, you know, maybe we should, we have a role as an educator also to eventually try to shed some light on what we consider to be the need to demystify 
And that's when the uh, Republic became our project. We said that first we're going to write to tell them really what this technology is. The more you work with AI scientists, the least they call it the intelligence, which is quite interesting. So we call yeah. it AI because I think it's a great conversation. It's a great topic for us to refer to this uh, form of extremely powerful computing power. But they call it merely computational power. They call it algorithm. They call it machine learning. They call it natural language processing. They call it everything yeah. but AI. So that part intrigued me a lot because I said, why is there such a big gap between what the scientists who develop this technology talk about and what everybody else describes? And so the AI Republic is really the effort to create this relationship between what we think the technology is and can do, which is by itself is a phenomenal advance in our technologies and the misinformation that I think we currently have so that we can empower more and more people, first of all, to know. And once they know, they can make a deliberate decision whether they need AI or whether they, actually they just need some good form of uh, either automation or digital transformation. But without that conversation, it becomes difficult for them to cover the space. So that's yeah. where the spirit of the book came from. Okay. Well, talking about the book and the title, so why did you call it AI Republic? Is there a, is there a bigger thinking behind it? Actually, there is. I think we don't necessarily play that up too much during the book. From time to time, we write things like at home in the Republic, but we try to play it down. But the main idea is that for a long time, our our motto at Nexus was democratizing AI. So we thought that if we call it Republic, we give the impression that artificial intelligence should be accessible, should be part of a participatory process, it should be distributed, it should have been concentrated in the hands of very few people. So there was a little bit of provocation in the title, a little bit of, let's say, wishful thinking, and a little bit of critique yeah. and more polemic thinking, because we have right in the book what we think is one of the major problems with this technology, which is the concentration of technology in the hands of very few people. And that it goes against any concept of republic, so to say. So that's yeah, where that's the title true. came from. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's a title that can adjust to the sensitivity of the reader. To some, it's just a good title. To some, is an intriguing title, and to more, it means something as a bigger picture, as you just mentioned. So, you know, we wanted to give uh, the option to the reader to feel empowered to the degree they wanted to. Yeah, well, that's 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 good thinking, and I, I mean, I've, I'm currently in the middle, of course, of also publishing my own book, and the title was definitely one that I've been thinking about a lot. And it's also interesting what feedback you get on that. So that's always a good thing. But I mean, indeed, indeed, it intrigued me as well. So there's this mis misconception. There is yes. There, Businesses struggle to find the right ways and the arguments or the, the business cases possibly to, to implement these systems in there. So how do we solve that? I mean, uh, what, is the, mm -hmm. what are the lessons learned so far in terms nope. of how we can start to apply these, these solutions in the right way? And then the question, of course, is also what is the right way? Yes. So we, we try to address it in a more structured way at one point in the book. When we merely say, you know, when you're really thinking about this technology, you need to start with some homework to understand where in what you do as an organization, you're reflecting on the need of technology to help you cover the distance that you currently can't cover, either in terms of efficiency, automation processes, time saving, cost saving, whatever is the story. And so yeah. we would like organizations to first understand their, their needs so that at least they can, they can pronounce a certain type of desire, what they would like to see. Because one of the things that we, we argue and advocate a lot in the, in the book is that 
the most successful form of artificial intelligence, they are called bespoke AI. So they're customized solutions because they really have to be integrated around the, let's say, infrastructure of the organization. And for that to happen, especially from the experience of what we have seen at Nexus, when you go from, let's say, the proof of concept all the way down to the integration, you really need to have companies working with you alongside. Their entire organization needs to be engaged, not only the IT department. And that's the sure. challenge. If companies are not able to see, number one, IT as part of the core strategy of the company, and number two, this is a co- collaborative long-term process that will transform the companies, usually either they don't need AI or they're not ready for it. And I think this is where we hope to cover the distance. Even if they get to the conclusion that they don't need AI, at least yeah. it came from a homework or some form of diligence on understanding what they actually needed. But reality that we discovered on is still quite discouraging because a lot of companies still today do not really know what they need. And that's by yeah. itself is an issue. Yeah, the question at the end is, like, yeah, I mean, that comes down to, to, a, to, to the homework. I mean, and, and indeed, what you're just saying, figuring out where you want to be in, in one year, two years, three years time, and how you're going to get there. But of course, if you don't know what, the, what is the art of the possibility, mm-hmm. then, so yeah, I mean, then you start to, who do you talk to? I mean, because I think also a lot of vendors still underestimate what is possible. That, that's true. So we, of course, we can talk from our own experience where any AI company equally has some form of advisory capacity because the conversation yeah. always starts with some form of consulting. There are, of course, more and more of the large consulting companies the interests that are developing specific services for their clients around technologies. We do have some of the large uh, consulting companies currently representing some of our solutions. And again, they cannot really sell the solution as a standalone. They sell the use cases of where we work and what we did to hope to get the conversation going. And then, of course, you start mainly with the education. One thing that happened as a collateral we were never expecting is that the number of companies that ask us to train them on AI, although we never started as an academy, you know, (laughs) it's been a quite interesting experience, something that you would never experience. One of the perfect second-order effects where suddenly people say, could you offer us like one or two day training? So just to give you a a long story in a shorter format. So our company, Nexus Frontier Tech, has the, let's say the beating heart is in Vietnam because that's where we have a young team of data scientists who is currently trained. And, but the need was, how do we make this more systematic? So in Vietnam, we open an academy, which is called Rubik AI. And the the concept academy is to bring, you know, people that have some interest in computer sciences up to the point in which they can be trained. Once they're trained, that they work for us as, as a form of engagement. But we already know that after a few months, if not a year, they will be headhunted by the larger company. And that's fine. Yeah. But we, we bring them up to speed to be hireable or employable. And I guess, you know, there's a lot of education, training, academies, and equally, you know, conversation with the consulting companies. And the role of... Uh, Let's say agent and intermediary, there's a whole army of people that today are working in this field of digital transformation that can really help to cover the distance. But I don't have an easy answer to your question, Ton. I just think it's a complex problem and we cannot answer it with a simple answer. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I noted or highlighted in the book was the goal is to lessen the gap between technology, the technology side and the things, or the technology side and the business side of things. That's and right. The, that followed it was there's a big risk that 
what we create in the lab is different from what is actually needed in the business. And I mean, that's that right. is, I mean, I've been heading up product management for a long, long time. And I know how difficult it is to, for even, for even product managers to get out of the, the four walls of the organization and actually talk to customers about, you know, what is needed. That's right. And then, right. then the, other thing, the other thing is, is the, the whole discussion, like really understanding what's needed and not getting specifications what to build. So that's a, there's a far bigger implication here. Because mm-hmm. I also recently spoke to Dan Fagella. Yes. He's doing a lot of AI research and, and mm-hmm. he also made a, a, a fair point about this, this, this challenge. That there's a lot yeah. of... Yes. Yeah. And also, you know, the culture that has been emerging from, let's say, the Silicon Valley, just to use a cliche, mainly yeah. this high-tech engineering culture was very far away from the reality of what company were. And one example of this that I can share with you, so... I teach a two-day course on artificial intelligence at Harvard, where it's mainly for people that would like to have an introduction to this. When we launched the course, I was expecting a certain kind of profile of people working in company that were intrigued by artificial intelligence. But to my surprise, the larger number of people who came to see my course are people working at Google, Salesforce. And I was asking, why would you ever come to, yeah, why would you ever come to a course like mine? When I'm not a data scientist, I'm merely a social scientist. And the answer was exactly this. They wanted to understand the social implication of our artificial intelligence and how what we call business AI is really the understanding of business and how business thinks in terms of AI. And that's a distance that I think the large tech company could not easily cover by the nature of who they were employing. So just to, to share at least some good news about this. So I was speaking during a program with the head of automation of Facebook who was sharing with me that in the last few years, Facebook had increased significantly the number of people that were coming from social science background, mainly business and project and project management, marketing. And the reason was really to create a culture on business and service that was not actually happening when you just had the cool kids that mainly had an engineering background. So it's, yeah. it's quite interesting. Not everybody is doing it. I think there is a, a clear trend. But it shows that we have built this fortified silos, even in time where we thought the silo were gone. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can recognize that one. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's so many things to learn. And that, I mean, your example explains that, that even the, the vendors that are very high on the list with regards to their, their advancements around the area are still are still sort of a learning mode. They are. Well, I mean, one of the things, I mean, AI Republic, one of the things that came out strongly for me is that the, the idea that you describe is to create a kind of a human, human being capable of working with technology <coughs> without feeling that technology and people have to, have to be a trade-off. I really was inspired by that. I think I've talked to Olaf, mm-hmm. Olaf Groth, yes. who in yes. his book also linked to the, yeah, the notion of symbiotic intelligence. That's right, right. So how do you see yes. that? Yeah, exactly. How do you see that developing, and, and, and why did you specifically come came up with with that conclusion? So, Siton, the interesting story about this is that, and again, it goes back into the early part of our conversation about demystifying AI. Yeah. We really thought that there's a trade off between economic efficiency that is person impersonated by this technology and humans. And clearly, if, you're, if I'm going to measure a person on repetitive tasks that were designed before this technology existed, any algorithm does a better job. 
you know, and yeah. a calculator is much faster than any good mathematician if you know the right sure. things to put inside. True. So the question is never to compare humans with machines. The question is how do I integrate technology in jobs that currently either exist or they can exist, and how do yeah. I empower this to become a form of excellence? Let me make a small interruption here. Mark just made an excellent remark about using technology to create a shift in value by creating a nexus between people and intelligent automation. In my upcoming book, The Remarkable Effect, I touch upon this in various ways. But one trait of a remarkable software company is their ability to create new possibilities and to be always one step ahead in their category. So if you want to get some fresh guidance on what you can do, product strategy-wise, to be both remarkable and impactful, just drop me a note at ton.dobby at valueinspiration.com. Back to the interview. So one example that I use when I, when I have, for example, a classroom is a paper from MIT, the Melly said, so who is better at, at predicting cancer? Is it the algorithm or is it the doctor? So by the yeah. way I'm asking the question, of course the algorithm will be better. But if I'm yeah. using the algorithm and the doctor, with the doctor, their performance yeah. is superior than any of the two relationship at first. So I guess that's what the symbiote intelligence really wants to prove is that is by integrating technology that we can free people of time that currently they don't have for, for, for them to do what we're best at, which is discovery, you know, the creation of ideas, eventually opening opportunity, networking, exactly. marketing. Yeah. And I think this is where I see progress. I don't see yeah. progress as fast as, as I would like. I still think there is a, there's a lot of education to make sure people do not get into a quick conclusion or trade-off, but they suspend this and they uh-huh. wait for something to happen with, with the integration technologies. And I think the manufacturing, so the factory floors, for some reason, they started to understand this before the management jobs. And, and the, the reason why I say this is that, you know, we replace workers on factory floor with robots. And then at one point in time, we had this dark factory. It's factory where you don't need electricity because it's mainly robotics. But there was a lot of maintenance that needed to happen nonetheless. So we started to see the rise of what we call the cobotics, this relationship between workers who were trained to operate with machines. So now for every dark factory that we build, we need to hire hundreds of people that will work in in roles that will maintain the factory to, to be productive. I guess the same will happen with management jobs, which are the one currently being mostly displaced. We will yeah. learn a redesigning job, redesigning job description. So the more I go into the technology, the more it looks that we look at organizational structure, organizational design, and now we're redesigning jobs. Yeah, I agree. That's, I think, the fundamental thing that we have to start thinking different about what jobs are about, what roles are about. And of course, on the broader level, what you need is a company to be successful because Yes. One thing is to, to keep doing the same and do more less, which is when the automation comes in. But when yes. symbiotic intelligence comes in, it's like, okay, it's not about mm-hmm. doing more or less. It's taking what you're doing to a completely level, which is all about competitive advantage. Absolutely. I that agree is, 100% that, on. That, that's fascinating. So I think one of the things that also struck me in the book is, is the role of, well, the traditional roles of the players are, are, are shifting. And for example, in the past, of course, there was a big role in, for this type of thing to happen was, was by government. You're saying in the book mm-hmm. that the, the, our next social and technological development will be less dedicated or yeah, dictated by governments. Mm-hmm. How do you see that evolving? And, and who's taking on that role forward? Then? 
So that's an that sentence is an unfortunate sentence to be fair with you because I wish I could say the opposite that government uh-huh. is equally playing a role. Truth is that with the exception of China, which of course is the only country that has a clear AI strategy, the other AI strategy are really really episodic. They are not very well funded, and they look a little bit like lip service rather than a true a true process of of uh, having the government involved in redesigning the productive systems. So I see an increasing role of the private sector gaining more and more traction. It comes from both the, of the large companies we mentioned before, but most of the innovation in AI is coming from smaller company, companies that will then eventually get acquired by the large ones. So, yeah. you know, the private sector is proving to be ahead in terms of all the different waves of artificial intelligence that we studied. This can change rapidly, though, which is the part where I like to be more hopeful. All it takes is more of an interregional or effort. And I'm thinking about the EU as a perfect example of what would be expected of a supranational entity like the EU, where you have a clear strategy on helping organizations to uh, develop transformation, where you start having allocated grants for those startups that do not need necessarily to hope to be acquired by a large company or by an IPO. So I think there is an opportunity for, let's say, what Olaf would call a multi-stakeholder congress. And I think in our case, the EU would be a perfect example to start developing a leadership role. It doesn't need to be a role like the Chinese where the, the patents are owned by state-owned enterprises. It can be a role of facilitating the financing, which would decrease the dependency from the large tech companies. But so far, I think it hasn't happened yet. But again, I, I hope that it could happen with a little bit of urgency. And there are some good sparkles of initiatives. They're not coordinated yet. But these days, fortunately, and different from before, really, you can change the, the destiny of a region in no time. You know? So we can actually really see this transforming quicker than what we have seen so far. Yeah, well, that's at least hopeful. And that's good. Yes, and yeah. I, I, also, I also understand and I also realize that <coughs> government is not going to drive the innovation. The innovation has to come from, from the entrepreneurs. Well, I call them the tech entrepreneurs on a mission that see something big and actually act and act on it and, and solve it. What I also, I mean, earlier in the, in, in the conversation, you were talking about you starting an academy, training people, uh, educating people to, yes. uh, well, to get into their next role. And I think that's also an interesting part of your book, I think one of the titles that I highlighted was how should we prepare our children for the world of AI? Yes. And I mean, if yes. looking at my children and, and how they are, you know, how they are naturally consuming, of course, the technology that's out there, mm-hmm. is, there is there more to do here? Absolutely. I think that that's also why we finished the book, you know, after, you know, just, just to entice our, our listeners. So chapter six is the one on the government and chapter seven is the conclusion. And it's mainly ahead of us, right? And that's why we decided because both, uh, well, Danny, Terrence, and myself, we have kids. And so we decided that, you know, we will look at the future primarily for them because they are the one that will have to figure out some of the things that currently we can't or we will never be able to figure out. So we said, you know, we wish they will be able to be empowered in a different way than what we were empowered. We were empowered with a good story to believe in, mainly with a form of compliance, you know, all we need to do is to f- do what we're told and likely we're going to be successful. And we can't say the same because the nature of the job will be very different from what we expected. So one of the things we say beside communication, confidence, and creativity is to help them learn coding. 
And so maybe one idea would be to start having them more and more exposed to the idea that in the 21st century, a language like coding is a way of expressing conceptual model into execution through computer power. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that everybody has to become a coder. Like none of us, hardly we've become mathematician, but we do learn math in school. So he has to have working capacity so that we can work with this, so that we also decrease this urban legends that we see around. But yeah, we, we think that they are the, the one that needs to be empowered the most that goes into redesigning curricula and all of that. But, you know, it was our most wishful way of finishing the book then. Yeah, I see that. The, the four C's, it's, it's, yes. kept you, it's nice. And it's also memorable because it's the four C's. Yes, and I yes. think that's a, that's a wise lesson for the education sector, of course, to look at and to, to start, well, changing the curriculum and, and change how they actually yeah, deal with education in the first place, which also needs that's to be right. much more outcome driven from my perspective. That's right. So, I mean, we're reaching the, uh, the, the top of the hour here. Yes. Finish it off. What would be a recommendation for you to, to the tech industry to start doing different in order to come out in a better way? So, you know, like in the Megatrends book, we always believe that there are many pain points that organizations currently go through. And sometimes they think it's about not having enough resources, not having enough people, not having enough, enough capital. Sometimes it's just they might have really adequate way of doing things. So one way, let's say the low-hanging fruit would be exactly this. Number one, recognize where you might really suffer currently because your business model seems to be really generating a friction with where the market is going and try to determine where technology can help you with the conversation. This is, I think, where the conversation should start. From there, you know, many companies will always tell, nice to have, but we can't afford it. And so the answer I always give to them is that there must be something that you can start now, which is a low-hanging fruit where has no cost, that can start shifting the thinking somewhere else. And I guess that's where I think organizations can start realizing what they can do. You know, the more we talk about AI, the more we talk primarily about society, the norms, the culture, and how we are still quite far from being able to embrace this powerful technology in our organizations. The market has understood this because the market has become more of a network. So it's much more fluid. It doesn't have a structure which is so rigid. It does not necessarily become pyramidal. It's really much more of an evolving system. Organizations, many of them are still organizing to hierarchical structure. And so their structure doesn't really help them to deal with the nature of markets are. And so maybe the, the in, inquiry on what can be done in your value chain is where they start even not only the transformation of the value chain, but equally the transformation of their structure. Hope, hoping that technology will help them create, in, like we actually say in the subtitle, the nexus between people and intelligent automation. And I think that's where, you know, we would like as a final, you know, takeaway from this conversation with you, you know, the readers or listeners of the podcast to eventually keep exploring. Well said, well said. Well, this was really inspiring. And like, like the other interview we had uh, earlier last year. So, yeah, and let's, let's hope that the, the actions and the advices are, are being picked up upon. And I think the future will then be looking great. The AI Republic. Thank you very much for your time, Mark. Thanks to you, Tom, for having me on the podcast. It's been a pleasure again, Mark. Your ideas about creating a better future by creating a nexus between humans and intelligent automation are dear to my heart. And I think you, uh, you understand that. And to turn this to my audience, I'm actually quite eager to hear your views. What are your thoughts about this episode? What triggered you specifically? Please share that. And beyond that, 
Thank you for tuning into this podcast. I had the honor to speak to Mark Esposito, co-author of the AI Republic. The goal of this podcast is to share compelling ideas and showcases to inspire what can be when technology and people blend in the right way. It's my strong belief that too much focus is put on automating people out of a process, in other words, cutting costs, rather than scenarios where the unique strength of people are augmented with technology to change the established rules and to deliver a value that was unimaginable before. So, with this podcast, I want to make a contribution to change this, to create a broader awareness of what can be, to accelerate the adoption by bringing together you, a tribe of like-minded people and organizations, And lastly, to accelerate the initiatives and solutions that could be created because one idea inspires the other. So if you know about stories that are worth sharing, please send me a message. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas, and that starts with you. If you want to have more information, read my blogs, or obtain information on working with me, just visit me on my website, valueinspiration.com. Thank you for tuning in. And you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast or provide me with your feedback. I'll see you shortly in a new episode. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.